We're going to start Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them, called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begat Enos, and Seth lived after he begot Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalaleel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalaleel 800 years, or sorry, 840 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalaleel lived 60 and 5 years, and begat Jared. And Mahalaleel lived after he begat Jared 830 years, and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Mahalaleel were 890 and 5 years, and he died. Jared lived 160 and 2 years, and he begat Enoch, and Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 960 and 2 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 180 and 7 years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and 2 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and 9 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 180 and 2 years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I'll pray before I continue. Father, I just ask for your strength and for your wisdom this morning. I pray, Lord, your hand would be on the words that I speak this morning, that you would put thoughts and words into my, my heart and my mind that would be glorifying to you, Lord, and that would be a help to those that hear this morning. And so, Lord, we commit our time, ask that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do this morning. In Jesus' name. As we read through this chapter, 
there's a bit of a theme that comes up, is that we have a son born, he lives a certain amount of time, he has his own son and children, lives on for a number of years, and then died. And every time we get to the end of that story for each person, it says, and he died. That was what God said would happen because of sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We all face the same end in this physical life. But somehow, amongst this story, there's an exception. We get to Enoch, and Enoch seems to be an exception to this. Before I talk about Enoch, though, and I will focus on Enoch here this morning, just mention... We deal with people that have all kinds of different opinions about the Bible and whether what we read is intended to be taken literally. I certainly believe that it is. But some people don't think that the Genesis version of creation is a literal six days and and all these things, but that it's just sort of a generalization of, well, God put it all into motion and then going on to our our scientific world that claims that we evolved and that it's a process. And so some people will try to put the two things together and just say, like, Adam is just a, you know, a generic man who was created by God. God put the thing into motion, put it together, and brought forth to the point where we are. And just doesn't fit with the whole story. It's funny, if that was the case, why in the world would God give a genealogy of specific names of people, the children, through the years, giving their exact lifespans? We have the from Adam to Noah in this one chapter and how long each person lived. And then we also see, you know what's crazy? Is the number of years that these people lived. (laughs) I don't know if anybody caught that, but we're starting at, like, Adam was 930 years. 930 years. Man, you could have a lot of kids in that time. (laughs) You know, the the families that have the, the 10 kids, typically, you have a kid every year and a half to two years. And you end up with 10 or so kids over a period of 15 to 20 years. And we usually stop at that point because, well, we're just too old. <laughs> but these guys lived six, seven, eight hundred years after they had kids. And it says they kept having kids. Man, you can get a population on this planet in a hurry <laughs> when you have that many kids and then they start having that many kids for that many years. It's kind of an exponential growth curve. So as far as getting the population of the earth up to where it is today, 
well, we're not even using this part because we go back to, to Noah, but, but getting a population up is no problem whatsoever when you look at the time periods. Like, okay, how in the world could people live that long? Our earth was different then. That's, that's the exact answer is that, and we'll look at that in a little bit more detail um, as we start looking at Noah and the flood and the realization that that flood is a point in time where God changed our world. And so the lifespan dropped significantly from that point on. So now I'll just put that out there that there is some things here that we'll come back to. But this lifespan is one of those things, and there's, a, there's some explanation of that. Part of that explanation, sin, we, we, we looked at some detail of the consequence of sin, and God spelled out some very specific things um, that was the consequences of sin beyond just our physical death. And diseases and aging and all of this is a part of that consequence. As more sin exists in the world, as time goes on, that sin has compounded. And so the lifespan has gotten shorter, partly at least, due to the increase of sin and how that has affected us. So we've looked at that a little bit. I won't dwell on it. Let's go back to, to Enoch now. We get to verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. I'm just going to mention, in Isaiah 65, I believe it is, uh, there's a description of the millennial kingdom of after Christ's return and, and what the world will be like. And one of the, men, the things mentioned in there is like a child will die at 100 years old. A child will die at 100 years old. Like, you're still, you're going to receive that longevity of life once again. And you're almost considered a child. It's like, like a 100-year-old is like our current 18-year-old, right? It's like you're just becoming a man, <laughs> Or an adult, um, a woman at that kind of age. It was like hundreds years. But you look at these guys, like they're, this is one of the young guys when he started having kids, he's 65 years old. Well, we're long done, most of us by that point, but this is when they're starting. So Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And I'll just throw out again, I'm sure most of you, if you're familiar with the Bible and Bible stories, you know who Methuselah is, and he's the oldest person mentioned in the Bible, and so he lives to 969 years old. That is an old man. That's just short of a thousand years. Like, he would have lived almost the entire millennial reign of Christ, right? Like, from... We think from 1900 to 2000 is a long time. <laughs> Imagine living from 1000 to 2000. <laughs> it's like, we can't even fathom that. Imagine the change. We think, you know, we get a person that's 80, 90 years old and 
You think about the change in technology that they've seen in their lifetime. How much different the world looks today. Can you imagine over a lifespan of a thousand or nearly a thousand years, the change that would have taken place in the world? It's incredible. Anyway, so back on topic here. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. Do you know that this is the only person in this list that is described as walking with God? It describes the life of each of them, and they lived a certain number of years. But Enoch is described as having walked with God. Do you remember Adam in the garden? God actually came and visited and walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it was their sin and their shame over their nakedness that destroyed that relationship and they stopped walking with God. Enoch somehow has restored that relationship with the Lord. It doesn't, like, man, this is short, right? Like, we get a whole three verses here of Enoch, verse 21 to 24. Enoch lived 65 years. He begat Methuselah. It doesn't say much. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. Begat sons and daughters. That's not much information. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Whole story. Like, man, I want some details. <laughs> what in the world happened in this man's life? That that is what is described of him. And he didn't die. The rest of these guys, it says, and he died. Didn't say that about Enoch. Enoch didn't die. God took him. Completely different end for Enoch. I want to look at this a little bit further. If we turn over to, to Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch is mentioned two other times in our Bible. And we're going to look at those two other times. And tell you, it's not, not a lot of information in either of these other places either. Just a couple of verses again. But we can gather some important details from it. So Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read from the beginning just to get the context of, of what's going on here. Um, just down to verse 6 though. So Hebrews 11 starting at verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's our definition of faith, by the way. Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, 
God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God has translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So here's our next part that tells us a little bit about Enoch. Notice we're back at creation here. <laughs> In the context, we have, we've been talking about God formed the world and, and all these things, and then we talked about Cain and Abel, and here we are talking about them again. And there's something about that, that we are supposed to go back and read those accounts and learn something. And that's, it says that he's testifying yet today about God. And that's, we, we learn about God's character, who God is, and what his plan for us is through reading and studying these things. And so it's the right thing for us to do is to look back at these things. Now we get to Enoch. It says he was translated that he should not see death. So in case the wording in Genesis 5 wasn't clear enough that God took him, we get clarification here that he did not see death. It says, and was not found. Because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. There's a, one little phrase in there. It says he was not found. Can you imagine his family and friends? This young man, only 365 years old. Remember his other men were like eight, 900 years, right? So he's a young man. It's like my age. <laughs> 365 years old. He just disappears. Nowhere to be found. It says he was not found. Well, that implication is that people looked. It's like, where did he go? He just disappeared. There's no body. He was not found because God took him. That's kind of neat. Now, we look at this thing and it says he had this testimony that he pleased God. So in Genesis 5, it says he walked with God. That's what we, we saw back there. And now we get to this point, it says he pleased God. Well, that explains a little bit further. So he walked with God and, and somehow that walk pleased God and caused God to treat him differently than all the others who simply died. Here's a question. How does a person please God with their life? <laughs> Through faith. That's it. Now, uh, Phoenix read Romans 3 this morning. It says, 
And he said in verse 20, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For by the law we know sin. The point of that is that no matter how much good I do, I can never please God by doing good. I can be the nicest person that has ever lived, and that will not please God. I can be the most generous person who has ever lived, and that will not please God. I can be the most religious person, keeping the law, and that will not please God. The only way of pleasing God is through faith. And there's some details given in verse 6 of what that faith must contain. It's not a blind faith. It's not just a generic thing that I can say I have faith. Well, there's some specifics that we need to believe, need to put our faith in, that's a prerequisite of pleasing God. Verse 6 again, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Very beginning. Now, is this the gospel? Is this how we get saved? No, it's not. Are we adding to the gospel? Are we giving a different gospel by saying this? No. You can't believe the gospel. You can't come to faith in Christ. You can't receive salvation without some basic prerequisites. You have to have a certain understanding of God and us before you could put your faith in what Christ has done on the cross. It's, if it doesn't mean anything, well, I'll believe Jesus. What do you believe about him? Well, we need to understand some things first. Obviously, we'll, we'll be talking about that in our Bible study when we talk about evangelism and how to share the gospel. But here's some basic things. We first need to believe that God is. Now, we remember, I believe it's James chapter 2, says, even the, you believe that there is one God, you do well. But even the devils believe and tremble. Believing that God exists, that there is only one God, isn't enough. It's just a starting point. It's just the prerequisite of faith to get us to the point of what we really need to believe about God. So believing that God is, is just a beginning, and it's essential. It's required. He that cometh to God must believe. Must believe that he is. Just done. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, what does that imply? Well, if I'm seeking God, I must come to some conclusions about him. And so the rewarding 
Just... You get people, our, our world is full of nutcases that believe all kinds of weird things about spirituality and God. And they define their own gods. And we, people describe this path that they're on and the path to God. There is only one path to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. Our study, our search for God, our search for the truth of who God is, necessitates God's method, God's conclusions. We have to come to certain conclusions in order for God to reward us. And so the implication here is that if I'm legitimately seeking God, the reward is not necessarily salvation. It's that he'll reward me with the truth. If I'm legitimately seeking him, He'll put someone in my path that will present the truth of the gospel so that I might believe. It's not an end product, just I'm searching for God, therefore I'm saved. That's not how it works. My search for God must lead me to the cross of Christ. Without that, I'm still lost. But I have to believe that if I'm really searching for God, that I will find those truths, that he will present it to me and make available to me access to that truth. And that's a wonderful thing. I just I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, but I wanted to bring up, because this topic brings up questions, and people, it seems no matter what I preach, somebody comes up with a, but this verse, or what about, and so I, I realize I should answer the obvious what about on this topic. What about Romans 3.11? Romans 3.11, part of the verse says, none seeketh after God. But Hebrews 11 said that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We need to figure out which one of these <laughs> is true. Let's, let's look at Romans 3 verse, or yeah, Romans 3 to start with here. And just consider what is being said in these verses. Studying uh, 2 Timothy 15, something like that. It says, oh, an approved workman, like study to show yourself approved unto God. Right? We're supposed to study the Bible because if we only just read a verse and it says something and we just believe a, a phrase, well, that's good that we believe what the Bible says, but what if something else in the Bible seems to say something contrary to that? Now I need to study and figure out which of the two things is correct and what does he mean when he says this or that. And so if we're studying the book of Romans, we're going to start to see that chapters 1 and 2 and 3 is building the conclusion that we're all sinners. And that God, like Romans chapter 1, tells us that God has revealed himself to all of us 
And that we have a knowledge of God in our hearts. And we see that in chapter 2, that God has put in our conscience a knowledge of him and his own and his rules. You know, lost people, people who have no acceptance of God, like they claim to be an atheist, don't believe that there is a higher power that sets the moral standards. And yet, those people, generally speaking, hold the exact same moral standards in general as what the Bible teaches. Where does that come from? God has put it in our hearts. And so we see that, and we also see, and the whole point of this portion is that despite having that high moral standard built in us, we break our own conscience regularly. We conclude ourselves, we condemn ourselves under sin, even without God's word, because we've broken our own conscience. And so when we get to chapter 3, we're still talking about that. And we can read a little bit about this. We've gone from Gentiles, now we're talking about the Jews. And get to verse 10 says, As it is written, as it is written implies that somewhere else in Scripture we can read something very similar to what we're about to read. And you'll find that in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And we could go there, we won't today. But it will, you can compare. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I just ask you to look at that description is that an absolute description of every lost person? Is there no moral, upright, living, lost people today? I've met many lost people who have much higher moral standards than what I myself hold. They live a cleaner, more apparent, like apparently more godly life than what I actually live. They hold themselves to a higher standard and they're, they don't shed blood. The, the environmentalists and the vegan crowd, like, they don't want to kill anything. Like, never, it's, a, it's a moral tragedy to, to kill an animal just for your own food. Their moral standard is quite high. In, in many ways. And so some of this description doesn't seem to fit. My point being, this is a conclusion of the general concept that we're all sinners. It's not necessarily a definitive, every single individual on the planet matches this description exactly. This is a general, this is what the lost world looks like. And so when it says that there is none that seeketh after God, 
it's not an absolute. No one ever has searched for God. You're going to quote to me John 6, 44. I can read your thoughts. <laughs> John 6, 44 says, No man, can, Jesus is speaking, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. Oh, okay. Well, that's not hard, guys. Do you ever read your Bible? What is that book doing? The entire book, the purpose, is to draw us to God. Every event that happens in our lives is put there to point us to God. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare... I can't quote it properly right in a second. But it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It's like... Everything about our world points us to who God is. That there is such a being. And all of it is there to draw us to him. There is no exclusion. No, we can't come in our own power entirely to God. But there is nothing, nobody who can say that God didn't do the drawing. Everything... In scripture, everything about our world is there to draw us to him. And just to add to that thought, if we're going to look at John 6.44 and say, no man can come unless the Father draw him, we should also look at John 12.36, where Jesus says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. There is no exclusions to that. And so, yes, we can Seek after God. Because God is actively working in us, drawing us to him. And so it's not just a one-way street here. It's not that we're excluded one way or the other. I want to look at... I don't want to look at a whole bunch of verses. I have a whole bunch of them. Um, I, I can show you many examples of... Men seeking God. Um, I'll just go to one for now. Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9 verse 10. says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. So just describing the response of God to people that seek him. Now that we're in the Old Testament, I'm going to go back to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 17. I think this is maybe sort of an all-encompassing <laughs> that just describes this process. Acts chapter 17. This is the Apostle Paul is preaching. This is the same Apostle Paul that wrote Romans 3.11 that none seeketh after God. Okay? Acts 17 and I'm going to start in verse 24. It says, God 
that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him. I know some versions say grope after him. It's like we're blind and they're just like reaching out in the dark, looking for something, right? If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. We are all able to seek after God. It's like groping in the dark, looking for something. But when it says he's not far, we can find him if we do that. We don't have to have a whole lot of light to start searching for God. He will provide the light as soon as we start looking for it. This is an interesting passage. This would be going off topic a little bit here. I pointed out God created everybody. And we see this genealogy back in chapter 5 of Genesis. It's after the flood, and we'll get to this maybe at some point, that we have these three sons and it describes Babel and how the different nations spread off because of God confusing the languages. And it describes that these three sons are what we call um, races of people, right? You know what the Bible says? It says all men are of one blood. Do you know what our scientific world has discovered? The difference between what we call races, our blood is identical. They're ethnic groups. They're not races. That's it. And so, the Bible, thousands, 2,000 years ago, told us what science just recently has discovered, that our blood is the same. <laughs> Weird, huh? But I believe that this would be a reference back to that Tower of Babel when, when God spread the people and created a variety of nations, it says the whole purpose of that was that they'll seek after God. The issue at Babel was that they weren't seeking after God. They were seeking after their own wisdom and their own devices. And God didn't like what he saw. And so he confused them and broke the thing up and spread them around. And then it says, so that they would seek after God. Well, this is God putting something out there for them to cause them to seek him. It's both things. In our own, we don't seek God. But with God drawing us, we can seek after God. 
And he will make a path for us. And that's what Hebrews 11 teaches us. That's what we can learn from Enoch's life as we look at Hebrews 11. That by faith, if I believe God, if I seek for God, he will start to give me the light that I need to know who he is. There's one more Oh, yeah, no, it's okay. One more spot where Enoch is mentioned is in the book of Jude, right before Revelation. Jude. It's one of these weird books that you don't get to say a chapter and verse. It's just Jude 14. That's the verse. <laughs> Jude 14 says... And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Now, I don't know if I wrote it down. Somewhere I saw if Adam had just died or died shortly after Enoch was born. I can't remember which way that was. I think it was Adam died shortly after Enoch was born. You can correct me later. The seventh from Adam. And you read Genesis 5 and you count the, the generations. And indeed, Enoch is the seventh generation from Adam. What is, what is, what is he saying here? Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So here's another thing. Enoch was a prophet. Saying, behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. I'm not sure there was even 10,000 saints to start with in Enoch's day. (laughs) Enoch prophesied of the very end. He skipped the birth of Christ. He skipped the crucifixion. He skipped the resurrection, the ascension. He skipped the whole thing and prophesied of the second coming of Christ, which when we read the rest of scripture that describes that, matches exactly what Enoch is saying. This is he cometh with 10,000s of his saints, as in those believers that are in heaven at that point, get to come back with Christ. We see that in Revelation 20, I believe, 19 or 20. They're coming back following Christ to execute judgment. So that we call the Battle of Armageddon. Is that's the end? That's that final battle, and Christ sets up His kingdom. And so, there's some other events, but that's for another day. But it's fascinating that Enoch prophesied of this event. 
That's all that the Bible tells us about Enoch. Because the Bible tells us this, some people will go and look and say, hey, there's a book of Enoch. It must be supposed to be scripture. Do you really think that the seventh person from Adam wrote a book and that it is around for us today to go find and read? Well, I say that about the Bible. <laughs> you know what? If it was supposed to be in the Bible, it would be there. It wasn't considered scripture. And if you read and study it, you'll find that it contradicts scripture and it says some very heretical things. Just because somebody quotes something that Enoch prophesied and that maybe it was also written in another book doesn't make the whole other book part of scripture. You need to be careful of those kinds of things. It doesn't tell us that Enoch, we're supposed to go looking for what Enoch wrote. But we look at this and we get these little tidbits of what Enoch's life looked like, what he believed. It was a life of faith, believing who God is, what God said, believing what God revealed to him. And God used Enoch to show us that there is going to be a, a people who don't experience death. And so and we, we see a couple of descriptions of that, um, 1 Corinthians 15 and, and 1 Thessalonians 14. That's wrong, 4. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 4 describes when Christ calls his people, says to meet the Lord in the air. Um, the dead first, and then those that are alive and remain are caught up together. Enoch is a picture of the end times events that are going to happen. And we can get encouragement and hope through that, seeing that, first of all, the prophecy that the end is coming and that we get to follow with Christ in that we are with him when he returns. But also that there's some that don't have to see death, that we will at that moment be caught up and changed and given a, a new glorified body. There's a, there's a hope that is given all the way back seventh generation from Adam of what the end of our world looks, will look like and what God is going to do what we think is going to be really soon and we're looking forward to it let's close with that Father thank you for the word and for the example um, even the little bit that can, your word contains of Enoch but Lord that we can have a hope of what you're going to do, the promises that you have made and the examples that you've given, the pictures of these events that have already taken place that we can look to 
as a confirmation of your promise, Lord. And so we pray that you would encourage us through these things, Lord, and that we would be looking for your coming. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.